This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. in our series, uh, Biblical Reflections on Marriage, and I'm going to, Lord willing, uh, talk about the paradigm for marriage from Ephesians chapter 5 uh, here in a few moment, moments, but before we stand and read God's Word together and pray together, uh, I wanted to, as I said, give you a little bit of review in case you haven't been here. Uh, two weeks ago, we studied Genesis chapter 2, and, and we reflected on the purpose of marriage. We asked the question, What problem did God solve through the invention of marriage? Uh, I know it's a weird angle to take on marriage, but you have to keep in mind that it was God saying that something was not good, that that reality caused him to invent marriage. The thing that was not good in the Garden of Eden, prior to sin and prior to death, prior to the fall, the thing that was not good was, quote, Adam's aloneness in the Garden. Uh, God said, this is not good, that he's alone. And we know what God meant by alone because twice he says in that passage, I'm going to make a helper, a strong warrior helper, suitable, who is a good match for him. And then God uh, creates Eve out of Adam. And so what we did two weeks ago is we walked through the scripture starting in Genesis chapter 2 and we thought about the fact and saw the reality that the purpose of marriage in the Bible is productivity. If if God calls a person into marriage, it is for uh, the purpose of increased fruitfulness uh, in his kingdom. Now, we've said over and over, the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the Bible does not call uh, everyone into marriage. The Bible clearly teaches that there are some who, in their singleness, they will get more done for God and enjoy God more than if they were married. But the assumption of the scriptures is this. If God is calling you into a marriage, it is because Jesus wants to do more through you and give more of himself to you in that marriage. Again, everything being said about singleness that we've said so far. That's the purpose of marriage. Last week we talked about the permanence of marriage. So Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24 and Matthew 19 and he reminds his audience of the, of the purpose of marriage. He reminds them that it's for productivity. And he says this, this alarming reality uh, to them. He says uh, that God, in light of that purpose, superglues the man and the woman together uh, at their wedding. And we said that because God joins the the husband and the wife together so permanently in their marriage, and because marriage can be so inevitably painful, it's really important on our wedding day to align ourselves with God's purposes and vow a permanent love. Let me say it a little differently. Because we know that our productivity in Jesus' kingdom increases over time, and because we know that there will be very difficult times in marriage... We promise to stay together so long as we both shall live. Now we said last week, of course, uh, there are realities that rupture this union that God creates on a wedding day. But even when talking about the realities that rupture a marriage, Jesus kept going back to creation and he kept reminding us over and over. His presupposition on marriage is that it's a lifelong resilient permanency. And so this week, 
I'm, I'm a true Presbyterian. I could not avoid it. I have come up with seven P's for marriage. Actually, six. Purpose, uh, permanence, and, and this week, paradigm. I really do think this is actually the best P. There are a few P's coming up, like passion. I'm not sure that's the best word for the sermon, but it is coming up. And by the way, next week is one of those sermons that will be, uh, we will be inviting the 4th, 5th, and middle schoolers uh, to participate in something outside of the room uh, in light of what we'll be talking about. Um, but at any rate, parents, we'll email you uh, about that. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to read, uh, you're going to hear me read uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 through 33. And literally, in a second, when you stand, I want you to listen to how often Paul presumes that the relationship between Jesus and the church is the paradigm for the relationship between a husband and a wife. And and Paul is going to say over and over, the way Jesus relates to his church is the way I want husbands to relate to their wives. And he's going to say over and over that the way uh, the church relates to Jesus That's how I want the wife to relate to her husband. Now before we even stand, I I want you to know that there are some some aspects to Ephesians 5 that can be somewhat confusing and they can appear to be somewhat offensive uh, and even oppressive. But I really want to beg you at this point, note with me that that is a secondary point in the passage. And for this morning at least, focus in with me on what is primary and what is most obvious. That Paul is saying the best instruction a man can get for his marriage is Jesus. And the best instruction a woman can get for her marriage is the church. Okay? With that said, let's, let's stand and let's pray together the corporate prayer of illumination and the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. By your spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe your word with joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, the reading is long this week. If you're willing and able, please remain standing. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, uh, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So at least five times in our passage, Paul uses a conjunction to establish and indicate the fact that the relationship between Jesus and his church is the paradigm for the relationship between a husband and a wife. Verse 23, even as. Verse 24, now as, so also. Verse 25, as. Verse 28, in the same way. Verse 29, just as. But not only that, Paul says something absolutely mind-blowing in verses 30 through 32. I want you to look there with me now. I want you to look there, and I want you to listen carefully. Paul says this, What was generally understood as the most important verse in the entire Bible on marriage... Genesis 2.24. What was generally understood as the most important verse in all of the Bible on marriage. He says it is first, foremost, and fundamentally about Jesus and the church and not Adam and Eve. He says Genesis 2.24 is first, foremost, and fundamentally about Jesus and his bride and not all the Christian couples that haven't read at their wedding. Look at verse 31. Paul quotes Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or like we said last week, literally be glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Keep reading. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What refers to Christ and the church? The previous verse. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. If you're a student of Ephesians or of the New Testament, you know that the word mystery uh, refers in the New Testament to something in the Old Testament that was hidden and is now revealed in the age of Christ. Paul is saying, this was hidden until Jesus came. But now we can look back at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and we can understand that it is not ultimately written about Adam and Eve. It is not ultimately written about the Israelites. It is not ultimately written about all the people married in Christ after Christ. Paul saying it was written about and it was fulfilled in Jesus and his church. I'm not saying it was only about Jesus and his church, but it was ultimately about Jesus and his church. And what that tells us is that our marriages are patterned after Jesus and the church and our marriages present to the world a picture of Jesus and the church. Or so they should. If you're confused, this mystery is profound. Welcome to the club. If you're confused, know that we're going to talk about this a lot over the next two weeks and even more in the weeks to come. This week I want to reflect more on the husband's role in a biblical marriage. Next week I want to reflect on uh, the wife's role in a biblical marriage. But in trying to write on the husband's role, I realized that I had to at least speak somewhat to the wife's role and somewhat mention the wife's role. So both will be included today and next week. But this week we're leaning in, focusing on the husband's role. Next week we'll lean in and focus in uh, on the wife's role. Paul tells husbands this. This is your outline. Be like the husband while being a member of the bride. First point, be like the husband. Second point, while being a member of the bride. 
Okay, so first, Paul tells husbands this. Be like the husband. Throughout the Bible, marriage is frequently used to describe God's relationship with his people. uh, Jesus' relationship with his people as a whole, as a community. If you've read through the four Gospels, you know that in every one of those Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And so Paul is here saying that Jesus is the ultimate husband, and he calls Christian husbands to be like him. Before we jump in, in verses 25 and following, and we really focus in on the husband's role, I want to jump in in this way. As I said before, some of Paul's teaching in this passage can appear to be offensive or oppressive or maybe even sexist. And in fact, I have to confess with the church that some of what Paul has written here, some of it has been misused and inappropriately applied. Uh, Some of it has been taken out of context and used to promote chauvinistic, self-centered, sexist living by a lot of men, both historically and present. And if I were to stop right now and say to you, in light of this, uh, what in our passage is potentially offensive? I think almost all of us would say it's verse 24. The wife is to submit to, be subject to, be under the authority of her husband in everything. But I would tell you that Paul's call to submission here that we're going to talk about next week, it is not what is going to ruffle our feathers when we hear what Paul actually wrote in verse 33. If you'll look down to verse 33, you'll see that Paul is summarizing the entire passage He writes this, Let each one of you men love his wife as himself, and let the wife respect her husband. Our culture's usage of the word respect doesn't even come close to what Paul intends when he uses this Greek word here. Uh, I was thinking, first of all, the word in the dictionary for respect is nothing like what Paul uses, but even more so, when I thought about how our culture uses the word respect... I began to realize that our ears cannot even begin to hear what Paul said. When do we use the word respect in our culture? It is usually when respect is lacking, or it is is in a context where we don't normally think respect is going to happen. When do we tell children to respect their parents? When they're not. When do we tell adults to respect other adults? In a context where it's unnatural. We have to tell athletes to respect their opponents. We we have to tell politicians, we'd really like you to respect the person you're debating. If you just think about the word respect, functionally, in our culture, respect means this. Try to not look down on the person you don't agree with or are in opposition to. Try to remember that the person you hope to beat is a valuable human. At least to me, respect in the culture I live in feels like this mental exercise in appropriate thinking while disagreeing or competing. And I think we hear respect in the context of Ephesians 5, and we hear this. Even if he's a doofus, and you don't really like him, and think that you can do better, try to respect him. Do you want to know what Paul actually writes in verse 33? A word more often than not translated as worship. Not capital W worship that the church gives to Jesus, but lowercase w worship that a human gives to another human. A human that they think very highly of, 
that they hold in high esteem, that they revere and adore. It really has nothing to do with what they think of them. It has everything to do with how they feel towards them. And so from this Greek word, we get our English word, phobia. It is most literally translated as fear. Let the wife see that she fears her husband. Remember that in the Bible, fear in a context like this has nothing to do with being scared. It has everything to do with trembling in awe and admiration. So not submit to that doofus and try to treat him with respect even when you disagree with him. The holistic mind, heart, and body. The old translations say reverence or awe, admiration, trembling, lowercase w, worship. Now before you get up and leave, (laughs) me too, (laughs) remember that we're looking at the man's role in marriage today. And I said all that to say this. If the husband will truly follow Paul's teaching in this passage, respect and reverence and awe and admiration will eventually and naturally flow from his wife. If the husband will give his life for the life of his bride, instead of using his wife for his life, the wife will naturally find herself in awe of, trembling before, and even appropriate worship of him. If we get to the end of today's sermon, and if we don't see the appropriateness of and the congruence of love and respect in verse 33, then we have not yet understood and we have not yet experienced what Paul means when he tells husbands to love their wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as, inasmuch as, just as, Christ loved the church. Verse 28, in the same way, the way of Jesus just described in the previous verses, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. Verse 29, nourish and cherish your wife, just as Christ does the church. In verse 25, Paul reminds us that Jesus gave himself up for, Jesus voluntarily died for the church. And then in verses 26 and 27, Paul tells us what each follower who believes in Jesus receives from Jesus because Jesus died for them. Look look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus died so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, in his sacrificial love for his church, forgives the church for their sins and gives them his perfect record. That's what Paul means when he says he has cleansed us, verse 26. Jesus is transforming his people into people who sin less. That's what he means by sanctifying us in verse 26. And Jesus will one day completely glorify us. He will remove all sin, all shame, and all guilt. All death will be completely removed from us. And he will present us to himself. And we will externally, like a wedding dress, be without spot or wrinkle. And we will internally be holy and completely without blemish. If you're new to the church, you have to understand something. This is huge. When someone converts to Christianity, when someone believes in Jesus, at that moment, all of their sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by God. 
And at that moment, they are declared to have the righteous and holy and pure record of Jesus. They are said to have the standing of Jesus in front of God. And since that's the case, from that moment on, the moment they repent and believe for the first time, they can't be more loved, they can't be more accepted, they can't be more cherished. But they, like me, will continue to sin for the rest of their life. But from that moment on until they die, forgiven, declared righteous, cherished, from that moment on, they will grow into an increasing righteous life. They will sin less and less. One day, their experience will perfectly match up with God's view of them. They'll be righteous and holy and lovely, verse 27. And Paul is saying with three times, he says, so that, so that, so that. He says three times, Jesus died, so that, so that, so that. And so when Paul says that husbands should love their wives like Jesus loved the church, And then when he defines that love as justification, sanctification, and glorification, he's at least saying that a wife should be blessed by her husband and not used by her husband. He's at least saying that the benefit a wife receives in the the marriage from her husband should be far more than the benefit the husband receives from his wife in that same marriage. After all, the church only responds to Jesus' love. The church can never repay Jesus for his love. Men, when we thought about getting married, me too, when we think about getting married, we basically thought or we basically think this, how can I find a woman who will make my life better? And Paul is saying we should think this, how can I, make, how can I find a woman and make her life better? So Paul's at least generally teaching that the husband should love his wife very, very, very generously and very sacrificially. But I think he's saying more than that. I think he's inviting husbands to join God in seeing their wives like the father sees them. I think he's inviting husbands to treat their wives like Christ treats them. I think he's inviting husbands to join God in the work the spirit is doing in them. When I thought about the women I know older than me who absolutely adore their husbands, I began to think about how that husband has treated them through the years. And I came up with this list. I only know to, to give you this list as questions. Husbands, are we accepting and enjoying our wives now the way the father does? even though there are still unacceptable realities in her heart and in her life. Not in what we say, but in what we do and how we feel. Are we demanding that she grow and change and perform before we accept her? Or are we already accepting her, expecting her to grow and be transformed and different? Husbands, are we utterly convinced that our wives are moving towards perfection? And in light of God's work, are we relaxed, optimistic, hopeful in every interaction with our wife? Husbands, are we captivated by, are we excited by that glorious self that Jesus is producing and will finally produce in our wives when he comes back? Are we seeing who she's becoming more than who she is now? And are we begging Jesus for the chance to help him do that? 
Think about, husbands, think about the sin that your wife most regularly commits against you. That sin, that besetting sin in her life that affects you, that impacts you, that hurts you. Do we accept her as one who is righteous in God's eyes, even when she's sinning against us in that way? Are we absolutely confident that Jesus is doing something about that sin in the present and that we will live with her forever as her, as her brother, as she, our sister, and, and she will never be able to do that again? Do you see the difference? Are we judgmental and condemning towards our wives? Are we pessimistic and demanding of our wives? Are we aloof and dismissive of our wives? Three times as many words are given to the men as the women in this passage because Paul knows that it's the, it's the husband's love that ordinarily brings about this respect in a wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We, we have said this over and over at New City that biblical love is transactional. And in that, we mean this. In biblical love, I give my life, uh, I give you life at the death of myself. I, I, I increase you at the decrease of myself. I profit you at the expense of myself. When Jesus says, greater love has no man in this, and then he laid down his life for his friends, he is saying, that's love, it's defined, and that's love in its essence. In a word, it's death. What can increasingly bring about the response of respect, reverence, awe, and admiration? Only love. If every time a wife interacts with her husband, if every time she's blessed, she's cherished, she's enjoyed, she's served, she's died for, she's promoted, she's put first, she's lifted up, that will naturally bring about lowercase w worship. In, in verses 28 and following, if you look there, Paul takes the second greatest commandment. He applies it to the unique relationship of the husband and the wife. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our being. And both the Old and the New teach that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as well as ourselves. In fact, the Bible says that you can summarize all of God's law in those two commands. Also, in addition to that, as we've been saying uh, for, for three weeks now, the Bible teaches that God superglues a husband and a wife together on their wedding day, that mysteriously the two, while still being two, somehow also become one. And so Paul, if you look in verse 28, he tells husbands that they essentially should love their wives as well as, as, well as themselves. He says, as well as your own body. And then he tells them that when you do that, when you love your wife, you're actually loving yourself. Because not only is your wife your closest neighbor that you should love like yourself, your wife is in some way you. So look at 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now the commentators will fight about verses 28 and following. And some will say essentially this, shame on Paul. Shame on him. He is encouraging husbands to be selfish. 
He is telling them to love their wives for their own benefit. Other commentators will say, how brilliant of Paul. How shrewd of Paul. He's getting on the level of these selfish men and he's convincing them to love their wives. I kind of line up with the other camp that just says, how straightforward of Paul. He's commanding them to love their wives and he's telling them, oh, and by the way, if you will love your wife, you will love yourself. Regardless of how we understand Paul's motivation, regardless of of how we understand how he's trying to motivate, motivate us husbands to love, what is clear is that Paul is going right after the common perception of marriage in his day. The the Greek word translated as hatred is the right translation, but we don't understand it. Hatred means disregard or indifference. It doesn't mean spite. It doesn't mean like active evil going after somebody and trying to get them. It means not caring about someone. And, And frankly, this is how men in Paul's day and age saw their wives, with indifference. If she's helping me get what I want, I'll keep her. If she's not helping me, or if I think I can find another who will help me more, I will let her go. The word nourish simply means to feed. The the word cherish simply means to keep warm. In that day and age, like ours, men thought if she can feed me and keep me warm, she can stay. But Paul is saying, love is the opposite of hatred. In hatred, we use others to benefit ourselves, but in love, we use ourselves to benefit others. In Paul's day and age, wives submitted, but they did not respect. Wives lived in light of their their husband's authority, but they did not adore their husbands while doing it. The only way for a wife to align herself underneath her husband's authority and to truly worship him while doing it is if she's loved by that husband in the exact same way that Jesus Christ loves his church. And so Paul says, first, this is the role I have for husbands in marriage. Be like the husband. But then second, he also says, be like the husband while being a member of the bride. I know that's, you're like, huh? When it comes to marriage, the fundamental role a man plays is being the bride of Christ. Said differently, when it comes to marriage, the eternal role the man plays is being the bride of Christ. Do you know how we say of the best teachers that they're great students? Do you know how we say of the best teachers, the reason they're so great at being a teacher is because they're an incredible student? In the same way, the best husbands are great brides. Or the most faithful husbands are the most faithful brides. Like a great teacher from their, like, like, like one, um, like, like a great teacher who teaches from their ongoing learning, a great husband leads from their ongoing following. And a great husband loves from being loved. Are you with me? When Paul says to men, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he's saying, love your wives as, as much as, just as Christ loved you. There are certain places in the Bible where all of God's children are said to be male. They're said to be sons. 
Of course, there are places in the Bible, in 1 John, for example, where, where we're sons and daughters, we're male and female. But in some way, uh, as it relates to uh, uh, our inheritance from Jesus, in some way, we're all sons. And while I expect absolutely to be a male in the new heavens and the new earth, I still, in some way, will be part of the bride of Christ and not a husband. Do you hear what I just said? My eternal position is that of the bride, not the husband. When Paul says, love your bride like Jesus loved the church, he's saying you can only love your bride when you live from the love of Jesus for you. How can I be like Jesus to Tricia? I have to first experience Jesus as Ted. What if you, like me, haven't loved your wife in the way Paul has commanded here? I highly recommend that you join me in running to Jesus and experiencing the forgiveness and the grace that he gives us in the gospel. And I highly recommend that we stay there in that place and experience uh, the, the status of being a perfect husband even as Jesus continually transforms us into a better husband. If we stay in that place of already being a righteous husband, even as Jesus is making us more righteous, what will eventually happen? We will eventually give our wives the love and the affection and the acceptance that the perfect wife deserves even as she is being made perfect by Jesus. What will enable us to give grace and not condemnation? What will enable us to give hope and not pessimism? What what will enable us to give love and not dismissal? When our wives sin against us in that same way until death do us part, only by receiving grace and not condemnation can we give grace. Only by receiving hope and not pessimism can we give hope. Only by receiving love and not being sent away can we give our wives the permanent love that Jesus calls us to. Grace and hope and love cannot originate in the human heart. They must flow through the human heart to another. And we are learning yet again today that we can only give to one another what we receive from God. What can make me give myself up for the benefit and for the nourishment and for the cherishing of Trisha in an unrelenting way? What can make me do that? Only staying very current in the benefit and in the nourishment and the cherishing that I already have in Jesus Christ. Be like the husband while being a part of the bride. I think there's one more shocking element to Paul's teaching that I kind of want to draw out, and I I hope to pick it up in the future. Then we'll be done. When you hear the phrase, leave and cleave, who do you normally think of? I normally think of the wife. I normally think that the wife needs to leave her daddy and her mommy and come be respectful to her husband. Who does the leaving of their home throughout the Bible? 
the man. A man shall leave his father and mother and be glued to his wife. I think this has huge implications for us in our marriages, but I want to actually just focus in uh, on this reality yet again. Who is Paul writing about uh, in this verse about a man leaving his father? Does he say this verse is about Adam and Eve? Does he say this verse is about us? No, verse 32 says this, this verse is about Jesus. Paul is saying Jesus left his eternal home to enter into our world and to be super glued to us. Where were we when Jesus united himself to us? Were we almost there? Were we 95% of the way to righteousness? Paul, Paul and the rest of the Bible says we were absolutely dead in the hell of our sins. And where does Jesus go to unite himself to us? From where does Jesus' church spring forth? Hell. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Where are we when Jesus leaves his father, his heavenly home, and comes and gets us? We're in the hell of our own sin. What will, what will compel me to leave my comfort and my agenda and my pleasure uh, to go and, and to love my wife? What will compel me to do that? Paul says, only seeing Jesus leaving all that he had, all that I could ever have and then some, and coming right down into my hell and making me his. Husbands, our role in the marriage is this, to be like the husband while being married, uh, while being a member of the bride. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can confess our sins to you because you have already paid for them on the cross. Uh, We thank you in sermons like this where our lives are found to be so wanting that you send your Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin that he might bring us back to you and the very throne of grace. We thank you that you're not a condemning God. We thank you that you will not judge your people, but you have already judged Christ uh, in their place. Uh, We thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that as you are transforming us now, you do it by showing us where we need transformation. And then you invite us to see you, lean into you, and trust you in that transformation. I thank you that here where I fall so woefully short that you come to me and say to me that I'm righteous, I'm already the perfect husband, I already have the record of the great husband of heaven. I pray that you would convince the men in this room that we have everything we need in the gospel to love our wives so heroically and magnificently. I pray that we would not leave here feeling condemned or bowing up as if we can do it on our own, but we would come back to your love for us and from that place extravagantly love our wives. 
Lord, I pray for my friends who are not married or those in a marriage where this is not even close to being true. I pray that they would remember that the ultimate marriage is you to your church. And they indeed are experiencing this love right now from you and will experience it forever. Lord Jesus, you know where each and every one of us is at. You know where you need to shepherd us into increased and abundant life. We are so grateful that your Holy Spirit lives within and ministers to us, that your word is living and active, that we have access to the throne of grace as individuals. We pray that you would shepherd us and save us and lead us now. In Jesus' name.